Hello and welcome to Spiraling Upwards, where we are in pursuit of real holiness of life as a daily response to grace, in the companionship of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the love of God the Father. I am Father Robert Healy, and I'm delighted to welcome you to Episode 9. Today we will be talking about why we don't always accomplish what we set our mind to do. Do you ever notice this? Sometimes uh, we have a great, you have a great desire to do something. Oh, maybe every day. <laughs> you say, this is something I want to do. This is something I need to accomplish today. And it doesn't happen. Why not? It might be because of various different obstacles that come up exterior to oneself. But I think sometimes this happens to us, and I can speak for myself, uh, I think sometimes it happens to us because there's something interior that gets in the way. And so I wanted to do it, but I didn't do it. Or I didn't want to do something and I find myself doing it. Why am I doing this again? I don't want to do this anymore. Right? This is the nature, what we experience uh, when we sin, for instance, is the experience of uh, being betrayed, in some sense, by our own nature. If last week we spoke about perfection in the unity of uh, with Christ as this goal towards which we are tending, to which we are pursuing our spiritual life in prayer, in the, in the pursuit of virtue, the real reason we need virtue is because we discover we don't have it. That is to say, I say, oh, I've got this great idea, I'm going to do these wonderful things, and then the next thing I know, I'm not doing it anymore. Go back to our conversation about making resolutions. And how many resolutions don't we accomplish when we say, oh, I've got this resolution, I'm going to do this. Maybe maybe you're thinking right now, oh, the last time I, I listened to the podcast uh, on resolutions, I told myself, I'm going to do this every time I pray, and I haven't done it. Why is that? Well, sometimes it's because we're forgetful. And sometimes it's because we have ingrained habits that go contrary to it. And the reality of who we are and what we are is that we're not only spiritual beings who have a, a spiritual soul that is called to glory and called to unity with Christ, we are also bodily beings. And we often find in our daily life, we, we often find that that bodily nature of ours can cause us trouble. Now, this is not to say that that bodily nature that we have is bad. Goodness, no. It's really good because God made it and he pronounced it good. He said, this is a very good. You know, God makes the heavens and the earth and he, he makes the, the light and the darkness and the, and the ski, sea and the sky and the dry land. And then he makes all the wild animals to fill them in the sun and the moon. And then he makes us and he makes us bodily creatures who have a spiritual soul. And as he has been saying, it is good, 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 down through the days of creation, when he gets to the creation of man and woman, when he gets to the creation of the human person, he says, this is very good. And so there has to be an answer to the fact that my bodilyness can often get in the way of my spiritualness. My desire to become a great saint gets frustrated so often by my lower nature. And I have to ask myself, why is that? And what can I do about it? How do I overcome without killing my human nature? Because that would 
be defeating the purpose. The whole point is not to be a Stoic or to be a Buddhist who simply tries to separate himself from his bodiliness. I'm just going to try to starve myself to death so that I can live uh, kind of this this uh, spiritual life and be consumed by spiritual life. No, no, no. We want to bring our body into line. We want to bring our bodily desires and and every aspect of who we are and, and how we do things into conformity with the will of God. This aspect of taking the reins in our spiritual life is very important, uh, and that's why I'd like to spend today speaking about uh, specifically what happens, why it is that we are um, that we are out of control so often, and what we need to do in order to get back into control of that. As really part of this discussion we've been having about prayer and virtue, and noting that not only do we find prayer something which in our resolutions we make from prayer should be leading us to greater virtue, but virtue in the pursuit of virtue itself should be drawing us to a richer and a deeper uh, reality of prayer. Why? Because I'm better able to do the thing I desire to do. I'm better able to do that good which I set my mind I'm on doing. And instead of finding that I flake out on it because uh, I well, oh, I just don't feel like it, I say, no, no, no. This isn't a case where it matters what I feel like doing. This is what I know I want to do. Therefore, I'm going to do it. And that sort of discipline is not easy to come by. It requires effort. Now, the Greek philosophers understood this very well, and they spoke about it in relation to the analogy of the chariot, because they saw that a chariot is a wonderful thing. Now, we don't have chariot races nowadays, mainly because they're so dangerous and they're so exciting that that they've been done away with. Why? Because it's a platform on wheels being dragged behind horses that are running at literally breakneck speed. Uh, I don't know how if you've ever had an occasion to work with horses. They are really powerful, big, muscular lightning bolts in a creature. Amazing animals. You get in the saddle of a, of a strong, v- vigorous horse, and you realize you've strapped yourself to a rocket. <laughs> it's very exciting partially because it's so dangerous. And the last thing you want to do in order to protect yourself is kill the horse. That's the last thing you want to do. But you want to train the horse so it obeys your every movement, your the slightest touch of the rein, the slightest act of your will, and the horse cooperates. That's really exciting. And the Greek chariot driver was in no different situation than the modern cowboy. He knew he had to train his horses. He couldn't just hold them in check. No man is strong enough, especially when he's dealing with two or four horses pulling his chariot, to hold them all in play with his reins. That is to say, that he's standing there on his platform is going to muscle all those horses into doing exactly what he wants when they don't want to do it. No, he has to train them to obey. 
And that's what makes chariot racing so exciting, made it the NASCAR of the ancient world, was that you have a chariot being dragged by horses in the midst of other chariots, and they're weaving in and out through each other, and the horses are are missing these obstacles, and the charioteer is doing it with absolute finesse and ease, like a basketball player who just, dunk, dunk, and then puts it right in the net, whoosh. or a football player who leaps over somebody else and is you're thinking, he just jumped five feet in the air. We've seen these sorts of things, right? Athletes who do wonderful things and make them look easy. Or a figure skater who effortlessly pulls a triple axle or whatever, you know. These sorts of skills, the skills that make the Olympics fun to watch or, or give us uh, a profound appreciation for a concert pianist, is it's specifically in the ease with which they do it, with which they control everything because they've trained themselves. If it's a, if it's a skill of themselves, or especially when you're dealing with a horse, they've trained the horse to obey. Now, if the charioteer is that part of me which knows what I should do and wants to direct my actions, and I really want to do what. I identify in my mind is the thing that is good and true and holy, why don't I find myself always doing it? Why do I find that my will sometimes inclines to doing whatever my passions, my lower nature wants to do? Well, that's it's just a matter of the horses getting out of control. There are two horses. There's the, the pleasure-seeking horse, the horse that really only wants to do whatever it likes to do. If it wants to stop and eat, it'll stop and eat. If it wants to take a drink of water through the passing brook, it'll stop in the middle of the stream and take a drink while the while the wagon behind it is getting floated away because it, it doesn't want to stop and drink. It wants to go through. And the, here's the driver furiously cracking his whip and, and saying, come on, come on, come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the horse is just slurping water, paying no attention. No, this horse has to be made to mind because it only wants to do whatever it wants to do and sees a lady horse come by and says, oh, hey, hmm. and then off it goes and it's, no, no, we got something to do here. <laughs> you were plowing the field and now you're making a track through the field the wrong direction, chasing something or other. No, no, no. That horse has to be made to mind. But there's other another horse. The second horse is the horse of our heart and our emotions. The, the horse that is all uppity about stuff and excited about stuff and enthusiastic about stuff and angry about stuff and fearful of this and courageous about that. And this horse also has to be brought to mind, but not in the same way as the pleasure-seeking horse. This horse has to be brought to mind by being encouraged when it's getting mopey and by being held back in check when it's angry. It has to be made to mind so it doesn't just follow the enthusiasm of the moment. And a wise charioteer might put two these two horses together, say, ah, the spirited horse, the enthusiastic horse, I'm going to put with this more pleasure-seeking horse because the pleasure-seeking horse is going to say, no, 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 that's too much effort. And so it's going to hold the spirited horse in check. Well, the spirited horse is going to encourage with its energy and its excitement, it's ready to go, let's go, let's go, let's go, the pleasure-seeking horse, so it doesn't, so it's encouraged to move forward. But both of these horses have to be maintained and controlled by the charioteer. And this, the Greek philosophers, we're talking 300 years before the coming of Christ in Bethlehem, um, the charioteer 
uh, as the Greeks understood him, is not simply trying to hold these horses in check. It's not going to work. He's not strong enough. He might be able to do it for five minutes, but eventually he's going to wear out. And then the horses are running ragged uh, and, and they're likely to get him killed uh, because they're just going to run around an obstacle they see in the in the track and his chariot will be dashed upon it and he'll be thrown from it and he'll go run over by somebody else's uh, chariot and that'll be the end of him. No, no. It's so important in the whole concept of the chariot that the horses be trained, you see, so that the horses do exactly what they're told to do. And all of that strength, all of that power, which is within them, is then therefore harnessed by the charioteer. So he's able to use this massive strength that he has with having two horses or four horses pull in his chariot to go at a ridiculously exciting pace, to weave in and out, to go right where he wants and hopefully to win the race. And this is a wonderful thing for us in speaking about virtue. That is to say, as we are, as we're striving to control the bodily passions that we have and the emotions and the energy that comes from our lower nature, it's not just with an iron rod and a, you know, and just muscling ourselves through it. The desire is to train ourselves so that we only want that which we should want. We're only angry about that thing we should be angry about and only to the proper degree and only um, in the way that would be right. So yeah, maybe I maybe I get angry about something, but instead of going and lighting uh, the guy's house on fire, I go up to him and I say, you know, you really should not speak to me that way or you really should not speak to this person to do the, whatever it may be. Uh, being vague because there's so many thousands of options of things that can make us angry. Now, these two horses correspond uh, with basic passions that we experience, and um, they're referred to as the concupiscible passions and the irascible passions. Big words. What concupiscible, concupiscible, where does it come from? Cupishere in Latin means to desire. So, concupiscible means with desire. So, C-O-N-C-U-P-I-S-C-I-B-L-E, concupiscible. And this very interesting word means all of those passions that have to do with my love for things or my detestation of things and my desire for things. And if I love something, kind of in the extremity of it, I want it so bad. I love it. I just love this. It's the experience of of desire for the thing. And if I hate it, if I'm so, I detest it with all of my heart, um, that would be this passion of hate. Again, we're not talking about the love that is divine love, nor the hate which is malice and desires the evil against somebody. We're just talking about the passion. We're just talking about the experience of this extreme uh, detestation of something or this extreme love of somebody and then every degree lesser than it, you know, where I just like something. I, you know, I like ice cream. Uh, I prefer this flavor to that one, but it's not a matter of life and death to me. Um, when I have the thing that I love, it gives me the experience of joy. When I have the thing that I hate, it gives me the experience of sorrow. Um, when I have the thing that I love, I have joy, but if I don't have it, I also have this experience of desire for it. 
I wouldn't have desire for it if I had it. I would experience the passion of joy. But since I don't have it, I experience this burning desire for it. Or maybe it's a thing that I can't stand. And someone says, hey, would you like this? I say, no, thank you. I'm fine. And so I experience the passion of aversion. I don't want anything to do with it. And the very fact of the matter is, if this horse, this concupiscible horse, only does whatever it loves and whatever it hates and only pursues the things, the joy and the sorrow and the desire and aversion that it has, then we, we can desire things we shouldn't desire. We can hate things and people and circumstances we should not hate. We can love things that we should not love. I should hate sin. I should hate to do something shameful. I should be averse to spending time with people I know are making me a, not, a, not to be a good person. I should have joy in doing the right thing, even if it causes me a sort of physical suffering. I should have sorrow when I see the misfortune of others and not feel a kind of glee because I don't like them. See, these, these passions have to be made to mind. Likewise, the horse that is the irascible horse, ira in Latin, I-R-A, uh, is anger. And so this would be the horse that, that always, is always angry about this or that, or it's fearful, or it's audacious because it thinks it can take it on, or it's got experience of hope because it thinks this is a thing that it can get, um, even though it's difficult. Or it feels despairing because it doesn't think it could get it. That's never going to happen. I can never attain this. And this, again, has to be moderated because it's not good to fear everything. There are certain things I shouldn't be afraid of. It's, it, it's a bunny rabbit. You don't have to be scared of it. Or there are things that I shouldn't be courageous about. Come on, come on, tiger. I'm standing in front of a full grown Siberian tiger. How is it in my room? I don't know, but it's scaring me. It should scare me a little bit. I should feel a modicum of holy fear. Uh, uh, where'd you come from? I'm just going to go right back into the room and close the door and call somebody, hoping somebody can come help me, right? So these passions, whether it be love, hate, joy, sorrow, desire, aversion, or on the other hand, the, the passions of anger and fear and despair and hope and courage, these passions have to be obedient they have to be obedient if I'm going to run the race well and not just get wrecked on, on everything that I come across. The wonderful thing about the spiritual life is it involves our whole person. You see, it's not just about teaching the charioteer what he should do, what he should think, what he should expect, uh, where he should direct the chariot. It's all also about teaching him to train his horses so I train my lower nature so that it obeys, so it cooperates, so that I only desire the things I should desire. I only hate the things I should hate. I only am angry about the things I should be angry about. I'm only a fearful of the things I should be fearful about. I'm only hopeful about the things I should be hopeful about and to the right degree and in the proper way. And insofar as I do that, I experience that I can do what I set my mind to do and I can grow closer to the Lord, and I can become a saint. Yes, even I can become a saint.